Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we have our last message in the series, Faith That Works. So turning your Bibles to James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Healing in Church. If you're a Christian, I guarantee that there's something that you've said not once but many times. I'll pray for you, we say. And I'll bet that at times you have, and at other times you've completely forgotten. So let's face it. We've all promised to pray for someone, and we have all, at times, forgotten to carry through. Now, just as an aside, I've learned a little habit. When someone has asked me for prayer, I like to respond, can we pray right now? And then I join with that individual in praying, and and I do that for two reasons. The first, because I don't want to forget, and by acting immediately, I am taking the request seriously. But second, I am reminded that prayer is not only an individual thing, it's certainly that, but it is also a corporate thing. To pray with the one who needs prayer is a great blessing. It's one of the means of grace that God has given his church. Today's our last study in the book of James, and there is no other paragraph that so emphasizes that everything that James has been teaching was to be understood within the church, the congregation of God's people. We can't learn faith and obedience without people assisting us. For the faith that works is a faith that works within the congregation of God's people. Of course, as we've already seen, that James is writing to the church. Do you remember the commands regarding the poor? What should you do when a poor person comes into one of your church meetings, he asks? And when James warns us against using our tongues in a way that slanders others, he says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. You know, brothers was a way of referring to the entire congregation of God's people. It's like us saying, church, this this should not be. And when he asks what causes fights among you, he means fights in the church. And when he tells us not to speak evil of one another, he means gossiping in the church. And so when in the end of this very challenging book, challenging us to a faith that works, James ends by talking to the church about how we might pray for one another, seeking God's healing. This is about being healed in church. I read the passage yesterday, but let me read it again. James 5, 13 to 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's notice three important themes in this passage. First, let's notice that the sick person makes the request. And then second, let's notice the ministry of the elders to that sick person. And then third, let's notice the outcome. What happens after the prayer is offered? So let's start with the request. I notice that in this case, it's not the elders who make the offer to come and pray for the sick person, but it's the sick person who makes the request. 
Now, the Greek word for sickness is a wider term than just a term for a physical malady. It can refer to any form of suffering. Now, we've noticed at the beginning of the book that James was concerned with those who suffered trials of various kinds. And this passage at the end of the book now talks about healing for suffering of various kinds. That includes sickness, but it also includes any other kind of suffering. So, for instance, in a local church, all manner of people may have suffered the death of a loved one, and they're suffering because of it. So what should they do in their sorrow? Well, they should call for the elders. What should someone do if he's suffering or she's suffering depression? Well, he or she should call for the elders. What should someone do who is suffering from some form of persecution? Well, they should call for the elders. Now, perhaps I make too much of the command to, to call the elders. It's also certainly true and a good thing for elders to take notice of those who are suffering. But I think this passage is an excellent corrective to the, to the very easy sense of alienation that we perhaps all feel when we say, you know, why didn't anyone care about me enough to call? Listen, rather than becoming bitter, pick up the phone, call one of the elders and say, I need prayer. Okay, so that makes sense. If you're sick, you don't wait for the elders to show up. You call them. Now, second, here's a word of instruction for the elders. What should the elders do when they come? Now, our passage says that they are to pray, anointing the sick person with oil. But why should they anoint with oil? There are those who argue that oil was in the ancient world used for medicinal purposes. So, So in that view, the elders come and supply whatever medical treatment was available to them. But that's an unlikely understanding of this text. Well, why? Because if this were a medicinal anointing, well, that would mean anointing is good for anyone suffering from depression to cancer to gout to leprosy. You see, it's a highly unlikely interpretation that that's why the elders anoint. So what are we left with then? Well, we've already noticed how often James makes reference to Jesus, both both what he said and what he did. You know, back in Mark 6, Jesus gives one of his first ever ministry assignments to his disciples or the apostles. He sends them out two by two on their first ever preaching assignment in Israel. And they were after that to come back to Jesus and report how they'd done. And Mark 6, 12 to 13 tells us what happened next. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. In other words, the anointing of the sick for healing was a practice that they learned from Jesus. And clearly, it wasn't medicinal, for the power to heal is in the miraculous power of Christ. No doubt then, as the apostles later would train local church elders, they trained them in the practice that they had already learned from Jesus. And James, as an elder trained by Peter, would now be instructing local church elders in the same practice. But what does it mean? Well, the practice of anointing comes from the Old Testament. You know, for instance, when priests were called for ordination for ministry, they were anointed with oil. You know, there's nothing magical in the oil, but it was a symbolic act. It meant that the priest was set aside for the service of God. And that's the same sense that I find here. It seems then that anointing is a physical action symbolizing consecration. To consecrate someone is to set them apart. They're to set aside for something extraordinary, something different than the norm. 
You know, in the case of the sick, the elders who recognize and teach that God's providential care covers all aspects of life, while they also recognize and teach that at times, God will separate a person out from the norm in order to do something special, something extraordinary to them. Anointing someone with oil symbolizes that the sick person is now being set apart for the gracious action of God. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus taught that in Matthew 18, verse 18. He said, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That was a power that was given to the church. So God, in the power that he gives the church, has entrusted the church to follow his lead. He has determined that the elders will take action in the name of Jesus in order to effect an outcome in the heavenlies. And so that, along with teaching and discipleship, is a role that God entrusts to the elders of a local congregation. So we've looked at the responsibility of the suffering person, and now we're looking at the responsibility of the elders. Next, let's talk about the outcome. You see, verse 15 says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So what does that mean? You know, does that mean that that everyone who's anointed with oil and prayed for by the elders is certainly going to be healed? Well, if that's what James wanted to say, he would be contradicting other parts of the New Testament on that same subject. You know, for instance, look at the experience of Paul in his ministry. Remember, Paul was an apostle, and according to 1 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of an apostle, which all the apostles had, included signs, wonders, and miracles. So Paul, by the virtue of his office, was gifted by the Holy Spirit with an extraordinary healing gift far beyond what other believers would have had. I say that because of what we find in some of Paul's writings. In 1 Timothy 5.23, he instructs Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments, he says. In other words, Timothy had to learn to find normal means to deal with his ailments rather than a miraculous healing from the apostles. So why didn't Paul tell Timothy to call for the elders? Well, more to come. The Back to the Bible Canada blog page has recently seen some exciting changes. So in addition to Dr. John's blogs, we'll now be having regular monthly blog contributions from special ministry guests and friends of the ministry. So make sure to receive the Back to the Bible Canada Dr. John and Company blogs each week by signing up for our audio mail or download our Back to the Bible Canada app or just visit backtothebible.ca every week. Timely, interesting, biblical perspective sharing thoughts about faith, life, and culture with the Bible at the very center. To check out the Dr. John and Company blog page, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425 for more information. And remember to ask for your free ministry resource, 10 Questions About Money Matters, during the month of August. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 20, Paul writes Timothy again, and he tells of some of his experiences. 
He says, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. So Trophimus was ill, and Paul didn't lay hands on him and have him healed. You know, especially instructive also is Philippians 2, verse 27. Paul writes, Indeed, he, that is Epaphrodites, was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, Epaphrodites was not healed by the anointing of elders or by an apostle. Rather, he was healed because God in mercy prevented Paul's burden and sorrow from becoming too great. That leads us to believe that healing is not a divine right of the children of God. It's an action of grace when the sovereign God deems it for his glory and our long-term good. So if that's the case, then we can rightly assume that not everyone is going to get healed. The healing ministry of the apostles was primarily to authenticate the truthfulness of their message, not to ensure that everyone who got sick was healed. Not everyone got healed, no matter how much faith they had. And that's no different than it is today. And what do we make of what James says? Well, notice his wording closely. He doesn't say the prayer of faith will heal the one who is sick. Rather, he says it will save him. Now, clearly salvation, even though it most often refers to salvation from sin in the New Testament, yet the term can be used more broadly. It can refer to physical healing, but it can also refer to some form of spiritual deliverance. And curiously, James doesn't tell us which one he's referring to. Saved? Well, how saved? And in what sense do you mean, James? I mean, he doesn't say. Only to say that the prayer of faith in some fashion will save the person who's sick. And also notice that James adds, the Lord will raise him up. That's a very interesting phrase. And it, it seems that James has chosen his phrases with the utmost of care. You know, sometimes in the New Testament, to be raised up means to be physically healed, but but more often it refers to the final resurrection when we're glorified and free of all of the effects of the fall. So if I pay close attention to the language in James, James promises something will happen when the elders anoint the sick and pray for that person. It may well be an instant physical healing, but it may be something profoundly inner or spiritual. You know, some years ago, I had developed such a severe pain in my neck that my neck actually locked up and I was in such pain that I was unable to move. I actually thought my ministry was over for a time, but I did what James called upon me to do. I I called the elders in the church. They came over to our house. They anointed me with oil. They prayed for me. They read scripture to me. They prayed some more, and then they went home. And I know this is hard to explain, but, but I sensed after they left an overwhelming river of God's mercy just pouring over me as as I'd never felt before. I was deeply assured of God's providential care and love for me. I sensed such peace, and that night, for the first time in over a week, I was able to sleep. But I was not instantly healed, and and those who know me know that I I continue to struggle with that same pain at times. It comes and and it goes. But here's the point. Even though I wasn't miraculously healed, there was a profound sense of encounter with God. Indeed, I've said it before, and I continue to say it, I have never seen a person anointed with oil, prayed for by believing elders, who has not, as a result, 
seen a considerable impact from God, whether it's an immediate healing or in some other sense, God's gracious action in that person's life. This act of anointing in prayer seems, in my judgment, one of the means God uses to deliver us and to deeply establish us in our faith. Now, of course, I must hasten to add one more point. Every believer in Christ is ultimately healed of all of our ailments. We will be raised up in the last day with physical bodies that that won't ache or get sick or die. But now James adds a piece that's essential. He says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, here we might ask, why are the issues of sin being brought up? And and what kinds of sins are being confessed? So, let's start at the beginning. Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer that we should make a daily habit of confessing our sins. Learning to confess our sins is a part of Christian discipleship. So, in that sense, there's nothing new here. But why is confession a part of the prayer for healing? Well, notice that James does not say, since he has sinned, but if he has sinned. In this way, James is signaling us that there may be times when an illness is related to a sin. Now, we see that, for instance, in Paul's warning as to how we might receive the Lord's table. If we receive it in an unworthy manner, and here Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, that some in the Corinthian church have become sick and others have died because of this. You know, other examples are also found in the New Testament. You know, James may be reflecting on Jesus' words recorded in Matthew 9, when a paralyzed man was lowered from a rooftop and Christ's first response was, your sins are forgiven. But let's ask a question. What kind of sins might cause illness and should be the subject of a discussion when a person calls for the elders to pray for the healing? You know, in my estimation from reading the New Testament, I see the possibility of two kinds of confessions. The first is a sin someone might refuse to renounce and confess. That is, they, they stubbornly persist in a sin because they don't want to repent, and, and elders may lovingly bring this up. A second kind of sin is that of a person who's not been in the habit of confessing their sins, and so they're really ignorant of their own sin. In either one of these cases, good elders will lovingly and forcefully call a person back. This confession of sins to one another is especially effective in those two cases. Once sins are no longer in darkness, hidden away, but are brought into the light, the sins themselves will often lose their power. But I don't think that this is the beginning of a theology of a confessional. For if we learn from Jesus, then a regular private confession of sins is in most cases sufficient to break sin's power. But in these cases in which a sin is deeply lodged and illness is a part of it, the elders set a person apart for God and they plead with God to heal. That's because sin and sickness are sometimes related. Unless we doubt the effectiveness of what James is describing, he reminds us of the prayers of Elijah and what God does when we submit to what he has called us to do. That now brings us to the last two verses in the book of James, James 5, 19 to 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
You know, James here doesn't say that this is only the job of the elders, but of course, this is one of the tasks entrusted to faithful elders. You know, Ezekiel 34 verse 16 is one of those classic passages in the Bible which indicates the job of every faithful shepherd, or as it's stated in James, every faithful elder. Ezekiel tells us that shepherds are to seek the lost, they are to bring back those who have strayed, they are to bind up those who are injured, they are to strengthen the weak, and then earlier in verse 14, they are to feed the entire flock. But in the end of James, James says that if anyone sees anyone wandering from the truth and brings him back, he has saved that person's soul from death. That's an important task for all the people of God. You know, James, as we have seen, is about the faith that works. It's about learning to live out the faith we confess. It's about authentic Christian living. Now, James doesn't describe the content of our faith. You see, he never mentions the Trinity. He never mentions Christ's substitutionary atoning death for our sins. James never mentions the role of the Holy Spirit. Even though he does mention the second coming of Christ, he never makes an extended teaching on that topic. You see, James is not a doctrinal book. It's a lifestyle book. It demands that those who hold the true faith live it out authentically. It demands we learn to do what Paul commanded the Philippian believers, to work out our faith with fear and trembling. James also commands the local church to live faithfully. And it's for that reason that we do well to return to James over and over again. For a faith that works is a faith that's overwhelmingly attractive both to those who live it as well as those who watch Christians to see if Christ really does make a difference in our lives. John, I'm just going to say what you've already said. You said a faith that works is a faith that is overwhelmingly attractive, both to those who live it as well as those who watch Christians, to see if Christ really does make a difference. Ultimately, the work that Christ has done in us should be observable. Yeah, it really is this grand opportunity that God has given us to so live our lives in such a way that we make much of Christ and that people, just simply by watching us, recognize this is Christ in us. So I think James, you know, as I've said, return back to it often, read it many times, even though it's a challenging book. And, uh, you know, at the same time, it really does encourage us to live this authentic Christian life, uh, which showcases the, the glory of God and Christ's kindness that changed life. All those wonderful things. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for this series on James. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. You know, there's certain sensitive topics some of us tend to avoid discussing even with our loved ones. Money is definitely one of those. But since the Bible certainly does not shy away from discussing the matter of money, then neither should we. That's why we're so excited to share with you our newest resource called 10 Questions About Money Matters. It's a short booklet based on Dr. John's audio series, God and Money, and it will help you address financial issues from a biblical perspective. We're confident this resource will provide financial guidance, helping us to become better stewards of the resources 
that God has graced us with. We're thrilled to offer you this booklet for free for the whole month of August. To request your copy or to offer a gift to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.